DW, World in Progress. Welcome to the show. I'm Kathleen Schuster. This week, we're looking at the people fighting to protect public health, starting with Ukraine. But now we're worried this progress will be lost. The constant attacks on Ukraine's electrical grid have made it difficult to store essential vaccines in proper refrigeration so they don't spoil. We'll also hear about an astounding trend in the United States of black doctors being dismissed at far higher rates from medical residency programs than other doctors. I left that program absolutely traumatized. My dream had been stolen, snatched from me. You're listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. We're beginning this week's show with a look at how public health is faring in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine has just entered its second year, and health officials are warning that the country's greatest medical needs extend far beyond the battlefield, and that gains made in recent years, for example, with vaccinating the public, could be lost completely. Reporter Levi Bridges has more. In the early days of the war, a Russian airstrike destroyed a maternity hospital in the Ukrainian city of Mariupol. In video captured from the scene, glass from the explosions shatters onto the street. In the aftermath of the attack, Ukrainian soldiers comfort women and children outside the hospital as a light snow falls. Mariupol was destroyed, and what remains of the city fell under Russian control. Since the war began, more than 200 Ukrainian health facilities have been damaged. About two dozen of them are completely destroyed. The war started last February at a particularly bad time for public health. Just days before the invasion, Ukraine launched a nationwide vaccination campaign to stop a rare outbreak of polio, a disease that can cause paralysis in children. In this video shown in Ukrainian TV, a health official tips a little girl's head back and drops an oral polio vaccine in her mouth. Ukraine was once a very vaccine-skeptical country. But in recent years, it had made big leaps in getting more children vaccinated against diseases like polio. Still, Ukraine's vaccination rates weren't quite high enough to stop a polio outbreak that left two children partially paralyzed. The country's polio vaccination campaign is continuing, even during the war. Raymond Dunkley is the World Health Organization's polio outbreak response coordinator in Ukraine. We have vaccines on the ground, but we cannot reach as much children that we have planned to reach. That is the bigger challenge. Dunkley says that with so many hospitals destroyed, it's very difficult to get the vaccines close to the people who need them. In some regions of Ukraine under heavy fighting, the vaccination campaign has been suspended because it's just too dangerous. Ihor Kuzin is Ukraine's deputy health minister. Ukraine has made a lot of progress with increasing its vaccination rates. But now we're worried this progress will be lost. The constant attacks on Ukraine's electrical grid have made it difficult to store essential vaccines in proper refrigeration so they don't spoil. Transporting vaccines is also a challenge because the war has made it impossible to carry them by plane. 
And another problem, Cuisine says, is some Ukrainians aren't going to health clinics for things like health checkups or to get vaccinations because of safety concerns. So Ukrainian health authorities started distributing vaccines by using mobile brigades to reach more people. But even despite these efforts, another huge challenge with trying to administer routine vaccinations right now is that millions of Ukrainians have fled for safety in other countries or moved internally within Ukraine. Pavlo Koptanuk is the co-founder of the Ukrainian Health Center, a think tank in Kyiv. He says this mass migration makes it nearly impossible to successfully continue a large public health effort to vaccinate kids against a disease like polio. The government and the health system cannot track where those people are with their kids. So I think the risk is that we don't control the process. Kaftanuk says the destruction of Ukraine's hospitals and health clinics is having grave consequences, not just for vaccine distribution, but for the health system in general. Kaftanuk's organization focuses on research. They're not a human rights group. But since the war started, they've pivoted to documenting Russia's assaults on Ukraine's health facilities. Kaftanuk says these attacks break the Geneva Conventions. They could be used as evidence to prosecute Russia in court. We want to convey the idea that what needs to be prosecuted is this very policy of destroying civilian life in order to influence the war aims. As the war continues, lots of international aid is flowing in to prop up Ukraine's health system. Kaftanuk says most of that aid is coming in the form of medical equipment. But he says what's really needed more is money to buy things like pharmaceutical drugs. And most importantly, support for more mental health services to help all the Ukrainians dealing with trauma. I met a lot of primary care doctors, family physicians in Ukraine who would say to me that now we see that patients, they need us to be their psychologists, not only doctors. The thing is that they cannot, they're not qualified to be psychologists of patients. One of the biggest challenges Ukraine's healthcare system faces going forward is helping the many Ukrainians who now need more mental health treatment. Rebuilding Ukraine's hospitals when the war ends, that's the easy part. Healing the mental scars of this war will be the difficult one. Levi Bridges with that report. Well, public health outcomes are also something on the mind of an American journalist named Usha Lee McFarling. One point she's been focused on recently is the interplay of medical care, systemic racism, and the well-being of patients. So there's really a strong case to be made that the massive health disparities in America, the higher COVID rates for people of color, the you know six to seven year life expectancy gap in which you know black people live uh, you know shorter lives than white people, as do indigenous people, that those really could be erased if we had a more diverse physician you know, nurse, pharmacist, you know, every type of medical worker workforce. Last year, Ushali McFarlane came out with an explosive report that Black doctors were being forced out of medical residency programs at far higher rates than other groups. And in early February, the Journal of the American Medical Association backed up those findings. We're going to hear more from Ushali McFarlane later in the program. But first, we're going to hear directly from one of the doctors who was profiled in McFarlane's report. I'm Dr. Rassandra Day-Walker. I'm a physician who is double board certified. Last summer, Dr. Rassandra Day-Walker's name became associated with an astounding report. 
According to a journalistic investigation by the health publication STAT, black doctors in the United States were being dismissed from medical residency programs at an alarming rate. One analysis cited by the report said black doctors only made up 5% of all residents, but 20% of those who were dismissed. That number also includes people who resigned, like Dr. Daywalker. And she says she was left no other choice. While I was certainly aware of the institutional and individual level racism that black doctors face every day in this country, I was not specifically aware of the disproportionate dismissals and coerced resignations that black residents are facing prior to me becoming a resident myself. And while I possess multiple historically marginalized identities from being a woman to being a first generation individual and more, I never thought of it as a negative or potential roadblock. I thought it was part of my superpower and what made me... Dr. Daywalker was born in Miami to immigrant parents from Haiti and Jamaica. Her father was an auto parts clerk and her mother a nurse. And like many doctors, she was a high achiever from the start. I remember being just the most avid reader growing up, nothing but straight A's. I was just having so much fun. I just loved learning and I was curious about the world. A few highlights. She aces the SATs, goes to college on a full scholarship, and later graduates summa cum laude from the Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta. In the U.S., once a doctor has finished medical school, they choose a specialization and complete their training in what's known as a residency. And this, too, goes well for Dr. Daywalker. She's getting great feedback, overachieving as usual. But then her program director leaves, and that's when everything changes. So... Now I start to face constant character assassination and bullying, harassment, gaslighting, fabrications in my file. My educational and training experiences are manipulated and I'm not getting the same educational opportunities as my peers. I'm being intimidated in the middle of surgery. She says she was also falsely accused of posing safety issues. She was made to come to work when others were allowed to work remotely. And once, when she raised concerns about how a Black patient was treated, she says she faced retaliation. Dr. Daywalker was the only Black resident in the program. In an interview with Stat, her husband said his wife's self-confidence plummeted. She became anxious and depressed. She was barely getting by. I, I left that program absolutely traumatized. And my mental and physical health had been destroyed. I was heartbroken. My dream had been stolen, snatched from me. And um, it took me a long time to heal. She was walking away from years of hard work to become what would have amounted to a unicorn in her field, an ear, nose, and throat doctor. Only 1% of these specialists in the U.S. are Black. We are all affected by these kind of practices. The Black residents, in this case, are canaries in the coal mine for what is really a flawed system. We have to recognize the interconnectedness of it all. Her residency was in Texas, and the state's workforce commission eventually ruled that she had had no choice but to leave given the workplace environment. 
She did eventually go on to become certified in occupational and environmental medicine and is currently pursuing a PhD in total worker health. But Dr. Daywalker can't quite put the story behind her just yet. For one, she's still tied up in a legal case related to her departure. And then, of course, there was the article. A former Surgeon General of the United States retweeted it to say that they had had a similar experience. And I've had so many people reach out to me personally to say thank you. And they had had a similar experience. And now they felt seen. And they felt empowered and they felt that they could start to heal and they could get their voice back and share their story. So uh, sometimes um, I get a little bit overwhelmed emotionally thinking about it. Coming up, an interview with Ushali McFarling, the journalist behind that story. But first, a quick music break. You're listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. In June of last year, a report by Ushali McFarling sent shockwaves across the internet. The title of her article was, It Was Stolen From Me. Black doctors are forced out of training programs at far higher rates than white residents. In her article, she points out some astounding numbers. In 2015, for example, only about 5% of all medical residents were black, but they made up roughly 20% of all dismissals. Among surgical residents, 12% of those dismissed were black, while only 2% were white. These numbers were given new credence recently when a study came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association that had looked at roughly 18 years of data. Their numbers and conclusions were very similar. I spoke with Ushali McFarling earlier this week. Ushali McFarling, welcome to World in Progress. Thanks for having me. You write in your article, and this is a point that you emphasize repeatedly throughout, is that it's really difficult to, quote, sort through issues of race when it comes to assessing these cases. So could you tell us a little bit more about how you deal with this issue as a journalist? Yeah, it's tricky because, yeah, there's probably, you know, physicians in training of all colors that shouldn't be doctors. And, you know, that's determined and they are, you know, asked to leave or they withdraw. And you could take any individual case and just say, well, they weren't cut out for it. They didn't have what it takes. But The problem with medical training is it's really kind of unsupervised. You know, people can be dismissed because they, quote, weren't professional enough. Um, Some people are told it's like they're told that their their hair doesn't look right. Um, You know, some people are penalized for like eating during a meeting or, you know, in an emergency, sending a, a CT scan from their iPhone. This issue of professionalism, it's so vague that really anything could be put under that. So what I did as a journalist was, to me, it was the statistics. When you see that many people being dismissed at high numbers, you know, there's something wrong. And I also just really tried to verify the stories by either talking to other people uh, who knew the people as they were training. Um, In one story, I talked to a physician off the record, I couldn't use their name, who completely verified that this student was unfairly drummed out of the program and told me that there were white students, white male students, that had been caught lying about their hours and doing really unethical things, and they did not leave the program. Um, 
you know, and she was dismissed for much more minor, I guess, transgressions. And it's a huge problem because we have so few of these physicians in America and, you know, everyone's wringing their hands about it and saying, well, why don't we have more doctors and let's have more pipeline programs and let's teach better science and math in fifth grade, you know, so more people can enter medicine. And yeah, that's great. Let's do that. But if you're drumming people out at every step, um, this is the reason why we really have appreciably not a higher percentage of black male doctors than we did in, you know, in the past 40 or 50 years. We have more black doctors, but the increase is largely black women. So something is, um, something's preventing black male um, from, from succeeding and finishing in medical school. And many would say it's structural racism within these programs and things like people being drummed out of their training, just as they're about to reach, you know, the pinnacle of their career. Um, after years and years of, of school and huge amounts of medical debt. So it's been nearly a year since your article came out. And I was just wondering what kind of reactions you've received. Um, have you received them from people in the medical field, former residents, mainly criticism, mainly praise or relief? Yeah, well, first of all, when the story came out, you know, I was a little nervous because this is new ground. You know, no one was talking about this publicly. Uh, there'd been no other articles about this. Um, but it was like, if you know the American Revolution, it was like the shot heard around the world. Like this zinged around the internet. It was shared. It's one of our top read stories on our whole website um, for the year. And I'd say there were two reactions. There were Black physicians that were like, mm-hmm, because they knew this was happening. They know people. They all know people that failed out of programs. A lot of them barely made it through, even if they might be top physicians at top universities now. Um, and then there was other people that were just shocked this was happening um, and just couldn't believe it. But I think we're kind of swayed by the numbers. Um, of course, I got people saying that, you know, this this isn't true and these people don't deserve to be doctors and they're not good enough. And then I think the saddest response were just the many people that wrote asking if I would write about their stories. I mean, I heard from dozens of people this had happened to me, this happened to me, um, here's my story. And, you know, unfortunately, I can't sort of tell all those stories. I've got, you know, so much to cover. Um, but I've spoken to so many people and these stories are just heartbreaking and painful. And I think the main thing that echoes in my ears still is just a number of people said, I thought I was alone. So at least people kind of took some comfort in knowing that it, they weren't alone, that there wasn't anything wrong with them. And maybe they're not the doctor or the profession they hoped, which is, again, really painful. But um, but they're not alone. You look at these numbers and you realize there's like a legion of, of people that, that could be physicians or could be in certain specialties that they had dreamed of that had their path blocked. Well, this isn't just a story about individuals. It's also a story about what this means for Black communities in the States. And when we say Black communities, we're talking about you know, the African-American communities, but also people who are from families whose parents have emigrated um, or who they themselves have emigrated. So what do you see as the long-term impacts of this trend on those communities? Well, I think it's really important. This, you're right. It's not really about individual cases, as, as sad as those are. It is about the lack of physicians of color in America. The numbers are so low and they're not growing appreciably, despite all the, you know, DEI, you know, diversity and inclusion work that every medical school says it's doing on its website. Um, and there's just a wealth of research coming out that people get better health care when they're treated by physicians who look like them. 
So there's really a strong case to be made that the massive health disparities in America, the higher COVID rates for people of color, the you know six to seven year life expectancy gap in which you know black people live uh, you know shorter lives than white people, as do indigenous people, that those really could be erased if we had a more diverse physician, you know, nurse, pharmacist, you know, every type of medical worker workforce. And until we do that, I think these health disparities are going to remain very deeply entrenched. So this is really important. This is important for our whole, you know, health system, multi-billion dollar health system. This is important for white patients in that health system because this is about how we use resources and how much we spend and how long people live. Ushali McFarling is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter based in Los Angeles. She's currently the national science correspondent for STAT. Turning now to Africa. Better conditions in Western countries have been draining Ghana of a key part of its medical system, nurses. The UK, for example, which is struggling with nursing shortages, has even tried to sweeten the deal for Ghana. 1,000 pounds for every nurse Ghana contributes. But the International Council of Nurses is warning that these practices are having serious consequences for Ghana's healthcare system. Sam Baker has this report from Anna Baya. At a hospital in Ghana's capital, Accra, 28-year-old Josephine administers medicine to a woman who's just given birth. Josephine, who only provides her first name, has been working here as a nurse for just two years. Like many of her colleagues, she went into the profession to support Ghana's ailing health care system. Based on her experience, she says there is a lack of medical facilities, especially in rural areas. You will have to travel to the next village to assess health care. And with that, I felt like if I become a nurse, I can also help my community as well as earn enough to support my family. But now Josephine wants to move abroad for work. With a heavy heart, she applied for permission to travel to the UK, where many of her friends are already working. I had friends in school. Some of them are outside now. They, they are earning so much. And when you compare, you realize that it's just chicken change. They are doing way better than I am just because they have access and better systems. And here in Ghana, we don't have the same thing. It's, it's sad. It's so sad. It's, it's heartbreaking. Ghana is facing a mass exodus of nurses in search of better working conditions. In 2022 alone, more than 3,000 nurses trained in Ghana left the West African country. Most professional nurses there earn less than 300 euros a month. According to the Ghana Registered Nurses and Midwives Association, it's poor pay that drives many nurses abroad, to the U.S., Canada, and Australia, in addition to the U.K. During a recent visit to Ghana, Germany's Federal Minister of Labor and Social Affairs, Hubertus Heil, also promised help for those wishing to leave the country, without mentioning specifics. Right now, most nurses do go to the U.K., according to Perpetual Ofori Ampofu. She's the president of the Nurses Association. It is definitely having an impact on service delivery. Because if you look at the data, um, we basically have more auxiliaries than professionals in the system. And these professionals are the ones leaving because these countries accept more of the professionals than auxiliary nurses. In order to bring nurses into the country, the UK has reached an agreement with Ghana, offering the country £1,000 per nurse recruited, money that Ghana could presumably use to repair its own broken health system. 
Nana Kofi Kwaki, a public health expert, however, believes the agreement could bring local health care to a standstill. What that fundamentally means for, in terms of the health system capacity locally, is that we are going to struggle and continue to struggle with making sure that we have equitable distribution of healthcare workers, and importantly, that certain categories of healthcare workers we have adequate numbers of them. The mass emigration of Ghanaian nurses has led the government to restrict their departure. But Perpetual Ofori Ampofu from the Nurses Association believes anyone is still within their right to leave if they want to. You cannot hold somebody who would have worked for, let's say, five years, ten years and wishes to travel abroad, and then you withhold the person from traveling. Migration is a right. It's the right of the individual. Ghana is one of the countries where the World Health Organization doesn't actively recruit nurses due to health care problems. Meanwhile, the UK, US, and other European countries have been criticized for taking nurses away from their home countries, which are already struggling. However, the Ghanaian government also plays a key role in protecting its health care system and medical staff, and ultimately creating conditions that will encourage the nurses to stay. Sam Baker with that report from Anabaya. Well, when it comes to health and well-being, perhaps it's not a surprise that a visit to the barbershop is, for some, a key part of feeling good. In Istanbul, a local barbershop is finally getting back on its feet after a difficult pandemic. And regulars say a visit is as valuable as going to therapy. Uwe Lube has this report. It's presented by Evelyn McClafferty. Musa's barber and hairdresser store tucked away in the Istanbul alleys between the Galata Tower and Taksim Square is usually busy. That is fortunate, he says, because during the height of the pandemic, his livelihood was at stake. During COVID, people were afraid at first. We were also closed for a while. At the beginning of the pandemic, the store was closed for two and a half to three months. Now Musa is back in his little store almost every day. The men sit behind the door, the women further back, out of sight. During the pandemic, Musa served his customers at home or in their offices. That's how he has kept regular customers. I have regular customers, some for 25 years. The longer you deal with each other, the less it's a business relationship, more like a kinship. But as close as the bond with the hairdresser may be, you have to make an effort, he says, or customers will leave. In our profession, if you can put it that way, once the customer's butt has touched another chair, it's over. That's what the old masters used to tell us. Musa has long been an old master himself. He is just over 50 and has been cutting hair for almost 40 years. There are three of them in his store, he, an employee and his wife. She speaks a little English. That helps with the many foreign customers. But basically, he gets by just fine, with sign language if need be, says Musa. I then proceed step by step by showing him again and again. He then says, little, little, little. That's how it works. But Musa's service goes beyond mere hair or beard trimming. He has to approach his foreign customers very gently, in the truest sense of the word, especially when he uses fire. For example, it's unusual in Europe to remove hair from the ears and nose or pluck the eyebrows. There's no waxing either. So the customers are surprised at first and react scared when you remove their hair. 
or they are scared when you come with a flame. But after that they like it, and they laugh or we joke around and keep going. Today the flame comes from the lighter. In the past, cotton balls were stuck with wire onto small bottles filled with spirit and lit, Musa recalls. But that was dangerous. Once we burnt the customer's ear, because the alcohol is just liquid, if you bumped into the bottle, something splashed in the ear and singed it. That's what happened. Musa's customers are not worried about accidents. For example, when shaving with the particularly sharp blades, they trust their hairdresser. With him, says regular customer Ayub, you feel like you're at home. And even more than that, Ayub tells us, he sees his hairdresser as a friend, advisor and comforter. He tries to help, asks about the problems. He listens to us. And for us it is like therapy. I feel like a million bucks as soon as my hair comes off. I go out here relaxed again and my worries are forgotten. Musa is happy to hear that, of course. This is actually a place to relax. Some people fall asleep here on the chair while being shaved. Even though this is actually hard to imagine with all the noise in Musa's store. Evelyn McClafferty with that report from Uva Lub. And that's all we have for you on this week's show. To listen back to this and other reports from World in Progress, you can check out DW.com or download the show from Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any feedback or questions, just drop us a line at worldinprogress@dw.com. This week's show was produced by Vipka Tiktmaya and me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineer was Jürgen Kuhn. Be sure to tune in again next week. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany.